a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. This week we take a look at two documentaries centred around masculinity and personal growth. First up, it's Free Solo, which follows rock climber Alex Hunold's attempt to become the first person to climb El Capitan without ropes. In part two, we discuss The Work, where three men from the outside join inmates in Folsom Prison for four days of group therapy. Enjoy this one, guys. My feeling is there'll be a lot more to talk about with Free Solo than the work. That's hilarious. My feeling is the other way. (laughs) Oh, is it? (laughs) Well, that's good. So who chose what, do you remember? You suggested the work. I I had heard of it. I saw a trailer for it a long time ago and thought I wanted to see it, but I'd never seen it. And you also, we mutually agreed on Free Solo. I'd seen that a while ago as well, so I had to... Yeah. re-familiarise myself with it. But, um, yeah, you suggested the work. Well, let's start with Free Solo. That's fine. So that means I do the introduction. Please. I sat down the other night with the whole family and we watched it, actually. It was interesting. They all wanted to come into the uh, film club and <laughs> put their sixpenneth into the review. They can. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, I said maybe they can do a guest spot. But anyway, Free Solo is a film. I've forgotten what year. I think around 2016. Director is Jimmy Chin and his partner in life as well as business partner, Chai Vasahaley. And it's a film about Alex Honold, who's a free solo climber. Free solo climbers are people that climb very daunting vertical rock faces without any ropes or ties or any of that stuff that mountaineers use. So one foot wrong and you're gone. And what he decides to do is climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. Uh El Capitan, probably a lot of people think it's a Mac OS operating system, but in fact, (laughs) it's a 2,300-foot vertical granite cliff face. And uh, Alex decides to climb it, and, and the filmmakers follow the process. The interesting, I mean, it's interesting on a number of levels because a bit like Senna and Amy and some of the other films we've discussed, it's not really a film about solo climbing. I mean, that gives you the narrative drive of the film, but it's really about what motivates Alex Honnold to do this, how he kind of deals with 
the challenges involved, but also he, he's got a girlfriend at the time and she's an important character in the film. So there's this question of is Alex, you know, risking too much um, knowing that he's, if he dies, it's not just him who, you know, he doesn't just die, his girlfriend loses her partner. And the third kind of main character is Jimmy Chin as the filmmaker himself, who's also a mountaineer, and the ethical dilemmas that he and the crew face with this um, prospect of filming Alex doing a climb that no one in the world has ever attempted, that no climber who knows anything about climbing would even think about attempting, and that there's a possibility that when they film this, he may just fall to his death, fall, as as Jimmy Chin says, I might see him falling through the frame of, of the camera and I've got to be prepared for that. So that the film has kind of two locations because one is the cliff face, but the other is the inside of this van that he lives in with his girlfriend, which is a kind of in, in his internal world. And interestingly, Jimmy Chin, being the mountaineer, is responsible for the filming of the climb, and Chai, his partner, does does all the filming in the van, because I guess I mean it it, it partly comes down to questions about ma- the role of masculinity, which we're looking at tonight in two films, but there's a masculine and feminine role division amongst the filmmakers in that Chai does all the kind of domestic stuff in the van and Jimmy does the kind of action stuff out of doors. It's a bit of a long-winded introduction. Would you like to add to that or (laughs) start unpeeling one of these layers for us? No, that's an impressive introduction, Pop. Well, both these films we're looking at today are right up my alley because one, Free Solo, is about, it's also about facing extremes and and a huge personal challenge, but it is, as you say, also about male masculinity, which our second film's about as well, and these are two topics that I'm generally into. So I enjoyed getting into both of these films, but Free Solo to me is very much about mastery, and I watched Alex Honnold's TED Talk, which he did, where he just goes through the climb. And he said he tried one seven years prior. Um, I can't remember the name of the other mountain, something dome. It was a, a similar type epic rock face. And he attempted this climb without a rope and he just didn't have a great experience. He he wasn't satisfied with the experience. He put that down to freaking out halfway up and getting very uh, caught in doubt and fear and having a very unpleasant climb and not being in the kind of Zen like state that he 
hoped. So he was really dissatisfied with the climb. And actually in this, this talk, it's, it's quite amusing because he, climb, he gets to the top and all the tourists have come up the track at the back and they're all chatting and on their phones and stuff. And he pops up over the top with no rope or anything. So they just ignore him because they think they think he's just a tourist who's like scurried off the off the side. And then um, when he's walking back down on the track with the tourists, he's got bare feet on and they're all telling him how hardcore he is walking in bare feet. They don't realize that he's just scaled the entire thing without a rope. But the point of that is he was very dissatisfied with that experience. So he had this seven year period leading up to climbing El Capitan. He had this seven year period where he really prepared to do it again in the way that he wanted to do it. El Capitan for him was much more about mastery in this Ted talk. He talked about it as being that he was so well prepared. He was so rehearsed. He was so practiced He knew every detail of the rock face that it left no room for doubt. And he he said in this talk that doubt is the precursor to fear. And if he didn't allow any doubt to creep in, he couldn't allow any fear to creep in. The way he got on top of that was through preparation and rehearsal and visualization as well. So he, he spoke about visualizing the climb, not just in a visual sense, but in a sensory way as well, visualizing how it would feel, how the rocks would feel. And he rehearsed this in his mind and he knew every, every part of the surface. So when it, when it came to doing the climb, he described it as an enjoy, as, as an enjoyable experience. So you're going to talk about the film or the TED talk (laughs) or all of what you're saying is actually in the film. He rehearses and practices uh, with ropes so that he can figure out every, you know, foothold and fingerhold of the climb. And you see that in the film. And then there's one scene where he's sitting in the van writing and he, I don't know if you remember it, he reels off the series of moves that he needs to, to make, like right foot here, left foot there, right finger up to such and such. And he re- he just keeps reeling it off. He's clearly got a kind of photographic memory in a way, or he's done it, he's like an actor learning his lines. He's done the climb so many times on a rope and fallen and you know, done it again and worked out the, the best ways of doing it. But it, as you say, it's kind of almost become second nature to him, which is the opposite experience of the crew who are terrified that he's going to fall, you know, and that's clear in the film. When he's climbing, one of the cameramen can't even look in the viewfinder he has to turn away because he's shit scared that he's going to film the death of a close friend. And in the TIFF, the Toronto Film Festival Q&A, they talk about this and Jimmy Chin says, I actually, you know, the tension in the film is pretty high, but in real life it was even higher. And Alex chips in and says, yeah, that's weird because you were all terrified and I was having the best day of my life. 
I was really enjoying myself. So, yeah, there is that mastery thing. And when you mentioned Zen, you know, he talks about the, the closest thing to being a warrior is free solo climbing and actually says um, that, um, just quoting here, it's about um, being a warrior. It doesn't matter about the cause. This is your path and you pursue it with excellence. You face your fear because your goal demands it. That's the goddamn warrior mentality. It reminded me, uh, actually, of when you were about six and you came home from school one day and said, Dad, I want to be a warrior and not a warrior. Do you remember that? I don't remember <laughs> that. Wow. You did. Jeez. I could still apply that. For, why aren't I applying that same philosophy now? <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> warrior versus warrior. Yeah, yeah Wow. I, uh, thanks for reminding me of that. I, I, that was, that was gone. Yeah. There's one, there's one, yeah. The, the guys behind the camera flinching a bit. There's that hairy moment where he has to do, it's the, it's kind of the peak of his climb. It's at the halfway point where he has to do the karate kick across. Yeah. And again, he, he'd been doing these stretches over and over and it, it was all very automated from his preparation, which allowed him to have such a, a smooth climb. Well, you mentioned the the dynamic between him and his his girlfriend, and I actually probably found that the most, one of the more interesting parts of the film was his relationship with his partner and having not had someone interfering in a way with his with what he does and getting on board with that and and her her tussles with it and her trying to understand why he's doing what he's doing and also coming to a place of acceptance that this is what he has to do the more he embraced the relationship he hadn't had injuries or anything like that and he started to he started to get injured and he started to he slips up in one one scene where he's he's doing a small section with her is he's preparing and he's, he, he has a bit of a fall and it's almost like the more he steps into this relationship, the more vulnerable he, he becomes the more shaky in a way. And I found that fascinating. Yeah. Well, his mentor is the guy that he's always admired called Tommy, Tommy Coldwell, who's also a climber and, is helping him prepare for the climbing El Capitan, actually says, you know, when you do this kind of thing, you need armour around you. And if you're in a romantic relationship, that gets in the way of the armour. And he actually says, you know, you can't, you can't do this and be in a romantic relationship. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the film, he's not, in a relationship with Sonny, that relationship begins after the filming. And at the beginning of the film, he's doing some radio interview and he says, um, I've, I've, I wrote it down. What does, what, where, where, where's the guy? He says basically he would never put a lady before his climbing. And then, of course, 
he gets into this relationship and it becomes a little more complex than that. But there comes a point where he's going up the mountain and she says, you know, you're doing this crazy thing. Is it part of your calculation that I'm that we're in this relationship? And he still says no. You know, he says my obligation to you makes no difference to to the decision that I'm making. Um, actually reminded me of, do you remember Nick Hornsby's book, Fever Pitch? Mm. About, it's about an Arsenal fan, an Arsenal football team fan. He takes his girlfriend to a game one day. She doesn't usually go. And she gets ill. She falls ill during the game. But he's so obsessed with the Arsenal that he can't stop watching the game <laughs> in order to look after her, which reminded me a bit of the um, when you had a girlfriend and a band and it was her birthday and you had a gig <laughs> on the birthday. And um, which came first? Well, it's uncanny you say that because I was actually just thinking that experience and I thought how much do I bring this but no that that, that's just that's a a thing I contemplate all the time because it was a real and I think that's what this film addresses in a way it was this real I, I realized this line in the sand of how are you going to pursue the dreams you want to pursue and also deal with compromise that comes in a relationship when I was young and was having my first experience of love, I'd also joined my first band and was adamant that, that I was going to pursue, pursue everything as a drummer. And yeah, we, we got offered a pretty big gig at the time at the level we were at. And who's the first person you call when you, when you get some exciting news like that, you call your girlfriend and it was met with silence on the other end. And that's because she had a family event on, which turned out to be the same day three months down the track. It always seems that these dates, they're always going to clash. And she basically said to me, it's the relationship or the gig. And I was devastated because I didn't want to lose the relationship. And I was in a real spin over it. And I took the gig. The relationship? The relationship crumbled. But I think that's what I found fascinating in, in Free Solo was him holding on to this lifelong dream and navigating this relationship right at the peak of that and then starting to waver a little bit as he as he embraced this relationship that's i think that's why i read that that part of it really resonated of course i guess um giving away a gig you're letting down the rest of the band it's not just a decision about yourself, whereas for Alex, it's just him. If he doesn't do the climb for the sake of his girlfriend or whatever, he's not letting anyone else down. But nevertheless, there does seem to be this, you know, I don't know if it is something to do with masculinity or whether women have the same kind of feeling or dilemma or whether they just automatically put their relationships and their families first, whereas the hunter-gatherers, you know, tend to uh, stick 
stick to their guns, as it were. But you see the same kind of dilemma in Jimmy Chin, the filmmaker, you know. It's almost as if, as if he's saying, what am I putting first here, my friend Alex and the risk he's taking or my filmmaking career? And he actually asks Alex, you know, would it be better if we didn't, if, we, if you don't want us to film it, then we won't film it, you know. And Alex basically says he doesn't care. But Jimmy Chin, you know, the, the crew are constantly discussing how they can film him climbing in close-up but not get in his way because that could cause his death. If they dislodge a stone or they get into his field of vision and distract him, that'll be the end. And Jimmy, too, doesn't, he doesn't want to disrupt the purity of the experience for Alex by, you know, having all these crew hanging around him on ropes with big cameras. And he, he, he says, um, I, I daren't even ask Alex when he's going to do the climb because that might put pressure on him and that pressure might result in disaster. So the crew are constantly trying to figure out how to avoid being intrusive but still make a film, you know. So they're, they're in this, a similar kind of dilemma. And, of course, Sonny is as well, you know. Shall I pursue my relationship with this guy who's always going to put climbing first and I risk losing that relationship or would it be better to bail? And as far as we know, she sticks with him, which is pretty amazing, really. I mean, he's a weird guy, isn't he? He's a strange guy. And I was <laughs> going to ask you what you thought about how he how he processes it when he gets to the top. I, to me, it was, it was almost when he gets to the top and he calls Sonny, he, he, it's almost like he's struggling to process what he's done or it's almost like because it was an enjoyable experience, maybe he expected nothing less. So it's, it was a strange phone conversation when he calls her and he's at the top because He's obviously elated that it's done, but it was, you could tell there was some interesting processing going on, I thought. Yeah, but he ends up saying, you know, thanks, I'll see you soon, and I love you. You know, and earlier in the film, he talks about how in his family, the L word was never ever used. And he also talks about hugging, you know, that he had to teach himself to hug people because in his family and as he grew up, no one hugged. And he got to the age of 23 and he thought, oh, I better teach myself to hug. And I'm a pretty good hugger now. And there's a couple of points where Sonny says things like, well, when it comes to expressing his emotions, Alex has got a lot to learn. So there's that aspect of masculinity too, the inability or the seeming comparative inability of men to express emotion 
Um, it reminded me of, of my own family in the sense that we were loved, but no one ever said, I love you. And physical contact was like cuddling and hugging was just not part of the lower middle, middle class British way, it seems. Um, I remember coming to Australia and talking to people and they'd put their arm around your shoulder or put their hand on your arm, you know, and I'd sort of jump <laughs> because I just sort of wasn't used to it. But there's also, I mean, you wonder about Alex being on the spectrum and his mum talks about his father having what these days we would call Asperger's syndrome. They talk about how that part of his brain is underactive. It's not, it does the part that, I'm going to butcher this, but the, <laughs> the part that experiences an adrenal rush or ex, is it at, at, at a low level. So he needs heightened, he basically needs heightened experiences to feel this kind of elation that other people might feel more normally. Or fear, because it's the fear, it's the fear centre of the brain. It's the part of the brain that governs the fight or flight reflex. And he actually goes into an MRI machine and they examine his brain. And that's the conclusion they come to, that it's not that his brain doesn't work, it's that he needs a higher level of stimulation in order to kind of feel fear. And he says, well, I wonder if that's my brain or just because I've been doing this for so long that I've kind of trained my brain. And he, he, he talks about um, turning fear into opportunity. And I think that's an interesting idea as well. Maybe his, his climbing of the mountain, the fact that he did express love at the top, maybe that was the climbing of a mountain in a way itself. A metaphorical mountain. This, metaphor, this metaphorical mountain, if that was the first time he kind of was starting to express that, he was making progress not only in what he was attempting, the extreme thing he was attempting to do, but also in his personal relationship. Yeah. Well, it's obviously difficult for him. In some ways, it's more difficult than the climbing. Like there's that sequence where they decide to actually, because he's lived in the van for 10 years, and they decide to buy a, an apartment together. And he really is really struggling. And then, you know, he finds the coffee machine and he figures out how to work the coffee machine and Sonny's so thrilled that, you know, he's coming to the party, as it were. So that journey of learning human relationships and love is as much a part of this film as the climbing of the mountain. I agree with you. And I think that's what really gripped Anne and Sinead and when we were all watching it together. I think that um, Chai being in that van when they woke up in the morning and before they went to sleep at night and getting the, those sort of confiding moments between the two of, between Sonny and, 
and Alex, and also when Alex is talking to her as the camera operator uh, about his family and all that stuff is, it, you know, it's 50% of the film. The, the climbing is the, I guess, is the other 50%. And, and for me, that, that's what makes it an absolutely riveting documentary. And, you know, it's what we didn't get in, for example, the Pele film, where you get the achievement, the incredible achievement, but as we said when we felt, when we watched it, we never really got inside his head. With Alex Honnold, you get inside his head and it's fascinating. It's the same with what we've said with a few of these, you, you know, Senna, Formula One, you don't have to be a Formula One fan to to enjoy it. So if, if this, if Free Solo was just a National Geographic type thing that was purely just capturing the climb, it would still be riveting. I mean, the shots, I, I get vertigo just looking at, like some of those shots give you vertigo um, as he's going up, particularly because there's, there's just no rope. But it's that, it's that other story, as you say, it's the other 50%. Our two listeners to this podcast, <laughs> if they haven't seen the film, you can have no idea until you watch the film about the precarious nature of what he's doing. I mean, his toe, his toes are gripping minuscule little bumps on this vertical cliff face. He's literally hanging by his fingertips and the kind of malleability and strength of his body and the preparation that he has to put himself through to be to to be able to do all this is quite extraordinary the stakes are extraordinarily high both from him but also from the crew as well and yeah, it's just extraordinarily high stakes across the board. Yeah, and the girlfriend. And the girlfriend is another stake, the relationships at, at stake. The stakes are high for everybody because he's doing this climb and all the time he's saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, if I fall to my death, you'll meet, you'll meet someone else, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah, I found that interesting when he said um, that. He said the reality is you within I think he said within six months you'll be, you know, you'll find someone else. That's the way it goes, you know, you'll move on. <laughs> well, I think, you know, personally speaking, to fully flourish in a relationship as an artist, I need to be doing my artistic thing. And the more the more I can balance the artistic thing or whether it's just the caveman need to create stuff the healthier that is the healthier the relationship is making the two work in harmony is a nuanced and tricky tricky thing because there's a lot of compromise in relationships and now having a very supportive partner has it's just all very healthy for the relationship that she supports me as a creative person but you know in her own strong way as well but the other aspect of all that i think is is the notion of um discomfort like alex says in the film 
you know, who wants to be happy and cozy? No, nothing is achieved in the world by people that just are happy and cozy. You know, you've got to have a level of risk, I don't know, discomfort, unhappiness, whatever, suffering in order to be kind of creative. Now, that caused a bit of a rumpus in our screening of free solo because some of the families said, bullshit, you know, I can be cosy and happy and still achieve, still do things that I want to do. Um, but Alex is is of the opinion that he doesn't want to be cosy, happy, cosy. He wants to be risking his neck, basically, which which is what he what he does. Again, talking about the TED talk more than the film, but in the TED talk, he says he feels he must he he achieved mastery. So it would be interesting to know what what his next challenge is if he if if he feels he's got to a level of mastery how do you top that and then yeah. maybe that maybe the challenges do come in other other forms and other shapes well he hasn't topped it since i don't think how could you uh, but well how could you and in fact i think he says at the end of the film some kid who's watching this is going to you know dream up something that even i wouldn't dare attempt and he'll probably, he or she will go and do it. He says, or maybe it'll be me that does it. Um, and we don't know. But what I, what I did read on the internet that he has done, I don't know if you know this, is he took his mum up there. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, with ropes, with ropes. They reclimbed it and his mum who's in her 60s became the oldest person or the oldest woman to have scaled El oh, Capitan wow. in wow. any form whatsoever. To climb it with a rope must have been a walk in the park for him. Maybe not. A walk in the park for him, but I bet it was a walk <laughs> in the park for his mum. <laughs> so, that, yeah, that that's quite funny, really. It reminds me, I mean, there's... The, of a couple of other films, of course, uh, Touching the Void being one of them. Have you seen Touching the Void? No, it rings a bell, but I haven't. Touching the Void is a docudrama, but it's built around two climbers who climb this mountain in Peru together, and it's an interview with them, and as they describe their adventure, so it's dramatically recreated. And the climax of the story is that one of them falls and the other one kind of catches him on his rope. But the thing fixing him to the rock is slowly but surely coming out. So the guy is faced with the dilemma of do we both fall to our deaths or do I cut the rope and save myself? Gosh. So I won't give any spoilers as to what happens, but that's an incredibly powerful film as well. 
and well worth a look. The other one that it reminded me of is called Solo, Just Solo, by Jan... With the canoe. The kayak. The kayak, sorry, from Tasmania. Yeah, that's an Australian film. He sets out to kayak from Australia to New Zealand and he doesn't make it. Um, And he kind of keeps a video diary on the way. I remember being affected by that because it had a similar family story. There was a lot of the wife and her letting him go off and it just didn't pan out well. Yeah. But the wife is saying the same as Sonny and the mother in Free Solo. They're saying, like, we have to let him do it because otherwise he's going to be unhappy. He's going to be miserable. You know, he's going to be miserable. So she farewells him, and in that particular case, it didn't end well. It, um, yeah, powerful film, but with a different kind of ending. One other small anecdote with, uh, with my brother-in-law, when we climbed a mountain here in Germany, 3,000 metres high Zugspitz, it was pretty safe one might say with backpacks and stuff but but when you get to the top it gets pretty rough there's a lot of shale and slippery rocks and as you get to the summit they do recommend that you have tools and proper climbing stuff which we just didn't have you just go up there and then all of a sudden it's like you might need picks and all this sort of thing so we just went up there but they have wires attached to particularly hairy areas where you've got to cross so you can support yourself with these wires bolted into the rock. And by the time we got to the summit, I was not as in good physical condition as the other two lads, brother-in-law and a friend. And um, uh, I was getting a lot of pain in my calves and I was pretty worse for wear. Those two blokes hadn't particularly broken a sweat, but we were going across one of these tricky sections and it had this steel wire that you could grab onto and I just lost my feet from under me on some rocks slipped out and saw myself plummeting down the cliff face for a split second and I just turned and grabbed this steel rope might be exaggerating but with like two fingers just grabbed it at the very last second I guess my point is it was just a hundredth of a second lapse just from tiredness, fatigue on a very, but nothing compared to climbing a cliff face. It was a pretty straightforward hike and it was just one half a second lapse and it could have been the end. So that brings us back, I suppose, to the notion that we can seem to constantly return to is the notion of mortality. And at the beginning of the film in free solo alex actually says he's asked by some interviewer you know why he does this and he says well we can die on any day of the week who knows but when you're solo climbing you're just more aware of that possibility it's a theme that keeps coming up We finish up free, so it just made me think of some of the irony in these circumstances. Like I've heard a story of a a guy who survived the Vietnam War and then he came back to America and got shot in a robbery in a a convenience store. Then there's 
Michael Schumacher, who was multiple world champion driver, retires and has a horrendous accident scheme. Uh, as as Alex says, it can happen to any of us. And through the making of freedom stories, um, there was I learned about a refugee who'd gone through hell to get out of, I can't remember if it was Iraq or Afghanistan, risked his neck on a boat, spent six years in mandatory detention on Christmas Island or somewhere, couldn't get a permanent visa in Australia, but finally was given asylum in New Zealand, went for a drive around New Zealand and was killed in a car accident. So we have to live for today and value the moment, I guess. Spot on. Memento Mori. What's that? Remember we are mortal. I still like the be a, be a warrior, not a warrior. That's a good one. <laughs> that's my new, that's my new, what do you call it, motto. I thought you would immediately key into that statement of Alex about what he's doing being akin to a kind of warrior mentality that you're called about and it's about excellence and purity and very much so yeah you know i thought it might connect with your martial arts yeah very much so studies and all of that kind of stuff book of five rings kind of about trying to master all that you do all areas of your life mutually so if he's a master rock climbing you know be a master of the relationship as well (laughs) yeah it was awesome awesome doco it is an awesome doco i think um i think it's a really i think it's a great doco personally because I, i think it hits all those notes it's got it's got such dramatic tension it's so visually stunning the reflexive nature of the crew involvement, the personal relationship aspect, and it all perhaps going back to his relationship with his father who demanded excellence, you know, who was a kind of Asperger's perfectionist. And that links, I guess, very much with the next film that we're going to discuss. That's a very nice transition there. So let's have a break and come back on the other side. Okay, cool. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. I'll give it one of my stellar introductions, yeah? Yeah, give it a stellar <laughs> introduction. The work. So I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, as I say, male masculinity is right up my alley, alley. So the, let me, let me. Well, is there such a thing as female masculinity? <laughs> or could we just say masculinity is <laughs> right up my alley? It's a tautology, yeah? 
No. Well, absolutely. Good on you. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Male masculinity is so up my alley, I don't even know how to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, scintillating introduction. The work is a 2017 documentary directed by, there's two directors listed, Jairus McCleary and Gethin Aldous Aldous. Not sure if I've pronounced those correctly. It's essentially about three men who are from the outside world as in their normal citizens entering into Folsom Prison to take part in a four-day rehabilitation group inside the prison each of the three men from the outside have an idea of why they why they're there they've all got something that they want to address but they're not entirely sure what that is or how it's going to play out this is like a men's group for prisoners that's been ongoing and i think it says at the beginning in text that some of the prisoners have gone through this program regularly over a period of time. Other convicts are new to it, but the once a year they invite several, they invite men from the outside world to join them in the group. I just wonder why do they do that? I didn't really wonder it while I was watching the film, but I sort of wondered it afterwards. Yeah, it's a good question. Why? Why would I think uh, because there is a there is there is a website for this. Um, it's now a kind of movement. Is it to bring an awareness? I think it's to bring an awareness to people in prison that people outside prison have the same kinds of issues as they do, and it's also to do the same for outsiders to show them that guys in prison aren't that different to those of us that aren't in prison. So maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe we've worked it out. So it's a good introduction. What did you think then? Where do you uh, want to start on this <laughs> amazing film? So there's three, there's Charles, Chris and Brian are the three main guys. And each of them have something that they're dealing with or they're stuck or something that they want to shift and they're not sure how that's going to play out. And they step into this group not knowing to what to expect and over this four-day period it begins to unravel. And the interesting thing is one of them, Chris, he says, you know, I think there's an expectation that I need to come here in here and cry and I don't necessarily have to do that and I don't want to feel this pressure to come in and in and cry. So it takes him a while to come to the party. The other guy, Charles, he's more forthcoming from the get go. He get, he gets in there and he starts, he opens up pretty quickly. He doesn't seem to be overly, he's, he's very empathetic to the inmates. He's very much quite into it from the get go. That's because his his own father was in prison when he was a child. Yeah, so he feels a he feels a, a deep empathy, and he's also he's also aware that he could have followed the same path. Yeah, so he's quite he's quite affected by it immediately. 
whereas the other two guys take a little bit to warm up. But it's it's centered around the, the main group, but they divide into groups where they have two inmates working closely with them. So they have discussions with these guys and then they work as a whole as the group. And when the two guys sit down with Brian, one of the guys from the outside, they, they're like, yeah, we've got a, a live one here. And he, he starts to confront some stuff. Well, he's a bullshit artist. <laughs> <isn't> he? <laughs> he, he thinks he's kind of superior. He thinks he's got it all worked out. And you like, um, one of them says, or in something I read, you can't bullshit your way past prisoners. You know, they they spot bullshit straight away and they immediately, as you say, they go, okay, you know, we've got one here. I guess the thing to mention too is that there's convicts, there's outsiders, and there's also facilitators who are kind of group therapy experts, I presume, also in the group. And it's not just the three outsiders, the, the, the barman, the museum and the whatever he is, te- teaching aid, yeah, teacher assistant. It's not just them who spill their guts. It's a couple of the convicts as well who are new to this group who we'd really see going through a lot of pain and expressing inner stuff to really cut to it what what i really appreciated about about it or was the physical element that comes into to play with this stuff a lot of these rehabilitation groups particularly in films everyone sits in a circle and talks you know i'm so and so and this is what happened to me and I'm sure that's very effective in terms of just talking and getting support in these groups. But what I, what I appreciated about this environment was the very physical, call it visceral nature of it and getting into the, having to get into the body and play things out, which is very different to sitting, say, in a therapist and just intellectualizing everything. I've done therapy, I've done workshops, I've done acting classes, I've had a quite a broad range of this type of stuff. And they've all been so helpful in different ways, but particularly with therapy, I found therapy, I've I found therapy to be a lot of talking and I can talk and it was helpful. But the the stuff that was very much more helpful to me was bringing the whole physicality mind body as one playing things out that's when i when i personally was able to make some important shifts and that's what these guys are there to do the the inmates and the guys from the outside they're there to make shifts and some of these shifts come from what might be considered bigger traumas than other traumas but essentially there's no ranking of people's hurt and pain Everyone has their own childhood experiences and this is a bunch of guys trying to deal with their pain that's come from various places. With Brian, the the teacher's assistant guy, who was very 
bullshit artist, very much a show pony. They literally had to wrestle with him. They had to wrestle him. He basically had to fight these guys to start unraveling some of the stuff that needed to be unraveled. And that's, that was really interesting to see just bring, bringing the physicality into it to help open these, these floodgates. It didn't matter the range of experiences from the inmates to the guys from the outside. We're all dealing with our stuff and pain is pain. One of the facilitators or the inmates says, your pain is at the bottom of the well. You've got to get to the bottom of the well. That's where the pain is. But at the bottom of the well, that's where the medicine is too. So to heal it, you got to go there and you got to be willing to go there. And some of these guys who've done it before, they're very willing to go there. They've done it before. They're like, bring it on. And the guys who have just come in are, are, are sort of trying to get there, bringing oneself fully into it in whatever way they have, whatever way they have to, if that includes getting physical or just talking about it or sitting quietly and getting meditative about it. It's we're all individual. It's whatever, what, what works best. And the facilitators help to find and nurture what works best with these guys. Yeah. What we see in the film, I guess, is a series of kind of, as you said, visceral, cathartic experiences where people do go down into that well and explore this wound, which, as you say, for some is, you know, heavy trauma. The one that sticks with me, Chris, who works in the museum doesn't really get involved for about three days. And then eventually he just talks about how his dad would fix cars and he would go out to be with him. And his dad would say, get me that tool. And he'd go to get it and he'd bring in the wrong one. And his dad would say, no, not that one. You fucking idiot. Go and get the right tool. And he'd go and look and he'd bring the wrong one again. And, you know, he it was a kind of minor, in the end his dad says, I'll go back in the house, you're no use to me. And this state with this kid who's now in his 40s and he's still that young boy being told by his father, you're useless, go back inside with your mum. And he breaks down and he has his kind of cathartic experience. Uh, one of the convicts is, he, he doesn't feel he has permission to grieve for the death of his sister because he's a man and men don't show their emotions. And the facilitator, they they get him, I think, to put his hand on his chest and He's kind of gritting his teeth and the guy says, no, just let your jaw go. And he physically, you know, encourages his jaw to relax. And that process, just the guy just goes down into this terrible wailing heap. And they all kind of sit around him and physically hold him while he goes through this grieving process that he's felt unable to go through. 
and it's the the film it goes through day one every day you see the guys arriving again in the van going through the process into the prison and the group starts and there's another cathartic experience it's it's an interesting film because structurally again it's episodic you know it wouldn't matter which guy went first really and there's no kind of climax to the film there's no resolution there's just a series of guys breaking down over things that they've been holding on to for the whole of their lives which seem and one one of the facilitators points it out to all be connected with father son relationships did you kind of get that particularly with chris as you say he he hadn't had a chance to to step into himself as a man and so in this group he actually had to stand up and and become a man in a way because he'd never had that opportunity and they did that by playing it out and they were they were very they said who do you trust to play your father here who's some and he picks a guy who who he trusts and they 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 role play it out and that's enough for him to at least take a small step towards coming into his own because he put up this defensive front a wall a wall and he and it was time for him to to break out of that but it, yeah it's a consistent theme there, there's one of the the inmates with the with the bandana who uh who he didn't know who his father was and his father would reappear and then try and give him a toy and a lot of these inmates who were doing heavy time we're talking double life sentences a lot of their misdemeanors have played out from a lack of love or from a an abusive father figure yeah as you say there wasn't really a climax in terms of the structure of the film but it was a bit of a climax to me because I was tussling with it through and experiencing these guys having their moments but at the end when when one of the inmates gives gives us a speech basically about there's too many fatherless sons that really hit home for me personally so for me it was quite a, a nice finish to the film the fact that there's too many fatherless sons out there and we need to to man up and ensure that these sons have strong father figures that's very important to me yeah and and fatherless doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily a literal thing you know for me it was more about the absent father and i think that was the case for some of these guys certainly the case for a lot of a lot of kids in my generation you know i mean my dad loved me and his way of loving me was to work hard so that we could have a good home life and a good you know and be reasonably well off but it meant that not once well once he came to see me play soccer and that was when my mum insisted and said bert you're going to see steve play because this was an important game and that was the one time he came to to watch me and then the only the only quality time i had with my dad 
was he would close the shop on the Saturday afternoon and that's when we would go to the soccer together to see Bath City play. And, you know, I've always remembered that as my bit of quality time with my dad, but that was like a couple of hours in the whole week. The rest of the time he he was kind of absent. So I've I've been through that um in therapy that, you know, putting my seeing 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 myself as that small boy just wishing that my dad was there with me kind of thing. There's a lot I could say about about you, Pop. I'm very grateful for you as a strong father figure, some of that time being a single father, but we've played in bands together, we do podcasts together. This this is a really unique thing that f- for father and son to do and something I'm very thank you thankful for. But as a boy I I you know one of the things for me was often you wouldn't let your struggles play out with me. What you were dealing with was your thing and 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 you wouldn't you try not to let that impact on me and I really appreciated that stability. There's lots lots of little things like um you know I remember you re- went to, off to a film festival in Mexico and came back with a a bottle of authentic Mexican tequila and my buddies and I were you know 18 and out on the out on the town every week and and you handed a mate and I just this bottle of vodka and you were basically, you know, you instilled trust in me. You were like, here's, here's the booze. I'm trusting you. Just don't be a fool, you know, as opposed to saying don't drink, you know. You were like, drink, have a good time, but do it, do it responsibly, um, even though I did end up on the doorstep a few times. <laughs> But you you would bring me you would bring me inside and uh, there's so many anecdotes I could I could tell going way off in terms of our relationship but also you know my my mates the reason this is Wolf Cub is because friends of mine nicknamed you the Wolf because you always got on a Pulp Fiction reference Harvey Keitel is the Wolf he's the problem solver you didn't judge situations when when things went down you just went about how can we go about making this better, particularly when I'd done some pretty silly things like broken shop front windows. There was no chastisizing. It was what happened and how are we going to sort this out and what have you learned from it? I could really go on and on, Pop, but we'll uh, we'll stick to the film. Well, yeah? <laughs> it's nice to hear that, Cub. Although, you know, my own memories are that there, I think there were lots of times where I was not a good father because I was not personally in a very good space, particularly, you know, around the time of the divorce, etc. I think uh, there was a lot, of, I, I had a lot of anger and I possibly took out some of that anger on on people around me, which probably included you. You know, so I've got some regrets in that regard. But um, I think something all of all of us now do as fathers is we try and be present for our kids because I've had that experience and lots of 
dads had that experience. And in fact, Charles says that in the film, you know, they say, well, what, what does it mean that your dad was never there? He was in jail when you were a boy. And Charles says, well, it means that I try and do the opposite for my kids. I try to be there all the time. And I can see that, that you do that with Leo and that um, we've done that with Sinead as she's grown up, both Anne and I, to make sure that we are there at all those important moments at school and with achievements and graduations and everything else. You kind of, you kind of flip the coin on the fuck-ups your parents made on you. you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You do. Like you've said, you might have been holding on to some anger and stuff. My, I, I notice it a lot with my son. He, he immediately cottons on when I'm not present. So he knows... He's a real challenge for me to stay present because he knows he knows when I'm off somewhere else or when I'm wrestling with something. And it's not, you know, it's not for him to it's it's not for him to to worry about or if if I'm tussling for something, it really is about me being pre- as present with him as I can be. I mean, I've moved countries to be present with him. Um which is a choice I'm deeply proud of. And so you should be. Yeah. it's a... So you should be. But it, it's hard because you can't always be there for your kids. You've got to work or do what you, you need to do to hold the family together and and you can't always be giving them 100% attention. I remember when you and Helen used to come home from school it was like you both wanted to tell me at once, you know, what had been happening during the day and I couldn't listen to you both at the same time. And that used to cause some friction amongst you two, you know. So it's difficult, but it's interesting in this film that each, and I don't think it's the way they selected the characters or edited the, the film, but every guy when he breaks down it looks like it's something to do with the fatherless son the masculine kind of we don't show emotion because we're men we get on with it you know all of that kind of stuff and it's as present in these convicts as it is in the outsiders and there's no difference between the two except, you know, you mentioned flipping the coin and doing the opposite to what our fathers have done. Some people, like the abusers, go on to abuse. So you either flip the coin or you repeat the kind of pattern, and that's the guys, I guess, that end up in jail for one reason or another. Yeah, it's interesting. Reminded me a little bit of Jeff, you know, the prisoner who I... Ah, made yeah. the film with I, I had a note ago. on it. Yeah. Yeah. What was your note? No, I just had a note. To, I noted somewhere Jeff with a question mark. It reminded me of, yeah, I really appreciated that film from you. It was a, for the listeners, it was a first person documentary series where the central character, say in each 
Doco was the filmmaker. So they were guided by Wolf and and other directors oversaw, but they essentially had the camera and then you compiled all the footage and, and, made it into it was it was it, epi- it was one was it, it was one a series it was a series it was but a series jeff's was one episode so jeff jeff had been in prison since he was 17 um and he'd got out it was he in his late 30s or yeah and he was trying to he was trying to find his way back into into society and that in, that included trips to the parole office and trying to track down a handful of friends who no longer existed. And um, it was just a very beautiful moment in that film where he was just enjoying ice cream on a Saturday night. Uh, it was such, <laughs> such a simple thing. And unfortunately there was no transition for him back into society. He couldn't, it ended very sadly. Yeah which I suppose brings us back to the film because when you look at the website for this uh, movement, which I think is called Inside Circle, it's called Inside Circle, and they mention that of 40 guys, 40 convicts who've left jail having done the program, only one has ended up back in jail. So... This initiative seems to be a genuine tool for rehabilitation, as you described at the beginning, whereas Jeff had none of that. He was institutionalised, and once he left the institution, like, he just, he was lost. And there was really, you could tell from the Blumen parole officer, you know, there was no real help or support for him. He'd done all these courses in jail and they were no use to him because no one's going to give an ex-con a job, you know. So it was a very sad story. So it's interesting to hear. I mean, one assumes that the claim that they're making is true, that this rehabilitation men's group within the jail actually is helping them prepare to engage with the world in a more positive way. Because a couple of them say, you know, I just want to beat the shit out of somebody, you know, because that's what I've always done. And then, like, a guys pile on top of them <laughs> mm. and they have to kind of physically work that out um, and realise that, it's not about beating the shit out of someone else. It's about recognising what's causing your pain and what you might do about it. And they step up for one another. That reminds me too of when my marriage broke up, when my relationship broke up with your mum, I joined a men's group for a while. And the main thing I remember is that when I used to get a bit whingy and complaining they'd all grab hold of me and just throw me up in the air <laughs> and then like, catch me. Yeah, you know, like you throw people up when it's their birthday or whatever. They would just throw me up and catch me. And it was such an exhilarating feeling that when I came down again and I, and I knew that they would catch me, I was quite happy to be thrown. And it just broke through that kind of grim the grimness of what I was feeling 
at the time. So it's physical, but it can be very simple, but very effective. And I wonder what you might think about all that, because I know that you've been a bit sceptical about cancelling, but I also know that you've been through lots of physical you know, self-work in terms of martial arts and acting workshops and all of that. So I'm interested to hear that you really related to the to the work. That that's why why they call it the work, because that is the work, is to go down into that well of pain where the gold coin is sitting at the bottom of the well. From what we see in the film, it's a it's a very safe space for some very difficult and heavy stuff to be dealt with and nurtured i think it's a risky business but what you see in this film is that it is a very safe with these facilitators and people ready to respond and the the way they're dealing with it so sensitively it's a very safe space for these guys to like rip shit rip the shit up that they need to as I say, like martial arts was just so benef- beneficial for for me in a life and philosophical sense because some weeks I was very much on the front foot. I was very attacking. Other weeks I was very passive or retreating or defensive and it was all relative to what was going on in life. And then the other big thing from martial arts was just really committing to stuff because if you didn't, if you didn't commit you'd off, you know, you're in danger of being hurt. So it really taught me to to sort of go all in, even though it might not be the outcome that you want. It's it's far better to to go all in. And then like I say, the experiences through therapy were, were daunting. I, I mean, I remember going to counseling as a as a kid. You took me to 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 a psychologist with the best in with, you know, with interest at heart because of marriage breakup and so on but I just remember it as a very daunting scary scary thing I felt like I felt like there was something wrong with me and I felt like I was facing some sort of person who was going to judge me and and I just didn't feel it just felt very daunting but then obviously in later later in life when I went back to to therapy I needed to just lay stuff out there objectively and and have a look at it all but the stuff I found the most benefit in is workshops that have brought the physical aspect in the visceral stuff do you think that's a male thing then yes yeah you know it's what we've been saying through the whole thing there's there's this need to be a strong male and what that entails and that we can't show emotion and particularly here in Europe Europe I think in Australia we're actually as dudes where we we're quite open to it. Like we, we're rough, like we'll have a fight or whatever in, in, in the bar, but we're actually quite open with stuff. But in Europe, I found it's very much more traditional to do not, do not show your, particularly here in Germany, uh, vulnerability is weakness. Man, men have to be men and, and do the work, which is the manly stuff, as opposed to show any vulnerability. And I, I believe that there's just great strength invulnerability and holding on to stuff it just holding on to it it always plays out in some kind of kind of way you can only hold on for it hold on to it for so long before it 
plays out, whether it manifests physically or in some some sort of thing. So if there's a message from the film, it really is, you know, the, the strength in vulnerability. And I've heard, I've heard in sport, I think the Tigers, Richmond Tigers did it. They've been having some of these more progressive type stuff. I, I don't know how true this is, but I'd heard the Tigers when they won premiership a few years ago had a lot of sessions around, hey, let's all open up to one another. And actually, rather than just pumping weights, which of course is part of it because you need the physicality, actually sitting in a group and like, you know, expressing that they had a toy stolen from them when they were three years old uh, ha- achieved great results in terms of bonding bonding the group. Yeah, that's interesting. Reminds me of the moment in this film where I can't remember which guy it is, but he starts to cry and like we all do when we cry, we're a bit sort of embarrassed and he looks down and the mentor or the prisoner is looking after him says, look up when you cry, like cry like a man, stand up straight and cry to me, you know, and he does. And um, the guy says, it's the greatest lesson I ever learned was to cry like a man, which is um, not a tautology. It's when something seems to be, what's the term? Seems to be contradictory. You know, man, man and cry don't kind of, they seem to be contradictory. But in saying you've got to learn to cry like a man, that sums it up for me what the whole kind of process uh, that, that, it's not an easy film to watch, is it? Because it is a fly on the wall, you know, there's no narration or mute. It's just, as you say, it's episodical and then there's a little bit of text to bring things together. But essentially it's just capturing each guy going through their stuff. I probably just felt like I was one of the guys sitting in the, sitting in the circle, not necessarily from more an observational thing um, and different things they were going through re- resonating on different levels. I think that's one of the fantastic things about the film is it it doesn't seek to kind of lecture or pursue a particular message, you know. They're not kind of steering you towards any kind of conclusion in a way. You're just part of the experience and you bring out of it what you will. So that so they're not sort of patronizing the audience and sort of explaining, well, this is, you know, this particular school of therapy, blah, blah, blah. You just go through it with them. And at the end of the film, you'd like, you want a stiff drink. But then that's the same with free solo, really. But it's a different kind of tension. I think the connection between free solo and and the work is this strength in vulnerability and his, his challenge in, in free solo is to come into this, this relationship and be more vulnerable in his, his personal life. And obviously the work is clearly about finding strength in vulnerability, but just, I think it's important to say the work is ongoing. It's not like these guys go in there and they get an instant fix. Yeah the work continues the work the work goes on forever it doesn't stop yeah in fact one of the um facilitators says that he says remember this not like a light switch 
You don't just flick it and the light comes on. It's an ongoing process. You've taken kind of a first step, but it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And this cry like a man, that is faith. You know, don't shy away from it. Just stand there and and easier said than done. We're, you know, as humans, we're, we're trying to hold back. We're, we're trying not to cry. <laughs> and that's very evident with the, um, with Chris, who is for the first three days, he's like, I, you know, I don't have to, like, I'm just not going to go there. And it just takes a very simple memory of his father for him to. But do you remember when Alex gets to the top of the cliff and he's talking to Sonny on the phone and she's saying, I'm crying. And he says, well, I feel a bit like crying too. And probably for the film's sake, it would be better if I did, but I'm not going to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sums it up really. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, he certainly does make progress in terms of his relationships as his relationship. And and you get the sense, the fact that he took his mum up the mountain afterwards and what that must have involved for him in terms of giving back to her and so on was is perhaps an indication that he, he had learned not just about his relationship with his girlfriend but about his family relates, learned something about improving his family relationships as well. Mm. Um, there's such an importance on community as well just being able to do the work within a community and realizing that we've all got struggles and being able to share those as as part of a community that it doesn't need to be done and need to struggle through this stuff alone did you spot the guy with the sign yeah (laughs) with the women yeah (laughs) I think it I I think it was the inmate that broke down because he couldn't see his son. He's got this sign that he's written saying, you know, any ladies out there please write to me and he's got the address. He's got the full the details prison. on there. Yeah. He's got his name, he's, his number. He's got the sign on his chair and he puts it on his lap at the he's, end. He's clearly like, I'm, I'm going to, he's like, I'm going to milk, I'm going to get some, like, I'm going to get something out of this. It was kind of distracting. It's not referred to or anything in the film. Nobody points it out, but it's just there. And I thought it was, I wonder if, I wonder if any ladies have written to him. They'd have to freeze frame it and write down the, the details. Yeah, they would, because you only get a kind of glimpse of it now and now and then. Pretty classic. Yeah. Classic. Yeah, it is classic. Okay. Well, yeah. I th- oh, I tell you what, there's one there's one moment in that film that stayed with me as well uh, in the work. The facilitator must have a, a radio mic on him. And when he grabs the guy who's crying and hugs him, their voices become muffled because the mic is covered and you can hear his heartbeat. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's a real moment in the film. And it goes for about 30 seconds. 
And what they're saying is very muffled, but you hear this kind of thudding of the heart going through the microphone. That's amazing. And then and then he lets go of him and it and the sound goes back to normal again. And I thought that was a really interesting moment because the temptation the editor probably would go, Oh, drop that bit. You know, we can't hear what they're saying. But there's something about that moment and the heartbeat replacing the voices, which is very, very powerful. Awesome film resonated in so many ways, but the work, the work, whatever that may be, is is ongoing. And I suppose there is that connection of the father-son relationship in both films. Um, And uh, Alex has found a way of of growing from that relationship with his father, whatever it was about, you know, you've got to be perfect or you're no good. He, He has, like, mastered that response. But as you say, you know, he's also had to learn a whole lot of other stuff. Whoever we are or however we grow up, it's probably unrealistic to think that any of us can grow up without any type of hurt. You can only do your best, particularly as a father, but, you know, do do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're all going to be our scars of one kind or another. Okay, well, two great films, I reckon. Bloody good choice. Really? Top. Yeah. How much our women folk would enjoy the work as much as they might enjoy Free Solo, I'm not sure. But as Wolf and Cub, two great films. So if there's any female listeners out of our two listeners please send us some feedback perhaps on what you thought of it yeah that'd be great that'd be good nice one nice one adios catch you on the next episode wolf sure thing (laughs) we hope you enjoyed the show if you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. Please join us on the next episode when we'll be sharing our thoughts on two documentaries that use interesting narrative devices, Misha and the Wolves, A Remarkable Tale with a Twist, and Stories We Tell, a film that excavates layers of myth and memory to find an elusive family truth. See you then.